Okay, I, I don't normally teach on topics like this because I'm, I'm not so much uh, a minister who's too worried about what the world's doing and try to teach against what the world's doing. I like to cast a vision for who God calls us to be and what he wants us to be. And so I want to inspire us from the word, word of God. This is who we are and what we are. And you'll find a lot of teaching like that in Scripture. Not that Scripture is opposed at all about saying this is wrong, this is right. But sometimes you just find people saying, like Paul at times, he would call things wrong and right, don't get me wrong, but at times he'd say, come on guys, don't you get this? Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own, you've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God. What's he doing? He's casting a vision to the people about who you are and what you are. He's not just barking at them about everything they've done wrong. He's saying, let's catch a vision for who we are in the Lord. So we're going to expand this topic on having a, a biblical Christian worldview. And the culture and society around us, you know, the morals, the ethics, the, the belief system, uh, Christians ought to be saying, we really ought to be saying, wow, the world's gone crazy. Uh, we ought to be saying that. Now, before you say, yes, this world's horrible. It's worse than it's ever been before. It's not even close. So I want you to, you know, get that out of your head. The Bible says in the days of Noah, they didn't even have a good thought. Now, I think we're not that bad, do you? I bet if you know an atheist who doesn't even believe in God and thinks God's a joke and the Bible's a joke, I bet you know that they have good thoughts and they do good things. So it's not a matter of how the culture's been is awful. Well, if you ever read some of the history of Rome, especially when the early church was, was firing up, uh, the culture in Rome was so ungodly, unethical, immoral, uh, so crazy, that would make our current culture blush and cringe. So I do want you to know, in case you hear me saying, the world's horrible, it's never been like this before. Yes, it has. Ever since the fall of man, we've struggled. So we look at the Bible, and some of the things may make us feel uncomfortable, but I do want you to know this. Is it gets down to this as, as believers. Am I going to believe the world and its beliefs, or am I going to believe the word of God and its beliefs? Now, in case you haven't noticed this, I, I'm a Christian pastor, so I'm going to teach what Christianity and the Bible teaches. And I hear this all the time from my friends that don't really you know, like the Bible or they try to work their way around it. Because I have several friends that are involved in, in things that they will say, but Tracy, you know, I'm a Christian, I love the Lord. It's just, I just don't buy into your version of the Bible. Who knows what the Bible says? You'll hear me talk about this on occasion. It's not confusing. It's not confusing. You know, I use, I think last time I talked about this, I said the Bible says, let he who has been stealing steal no more. Do something useful with their hands that they may be able to share and give to others. Now, what if you were a professional thief? But you said, well, you know, I love the Lord, and, you know, I only steal from certain people, not just from anybody, and, and I'm just not really sure what the Bible's saying. All right, really? Those of you who are stealing must steal no more. I just, I wonder what, maybe we can dig into the Greek and see what it says. No, we know what it says. It, the Bible's very clear in what it says, unless I get it, you're looking at some Old Testament prophecy that you're trying to work through or the book of Revelation, but for the most part, it says what it says and means what it says. So, I want to talk today about the star of our current culture. And this has been going on for 20 years, so this isn't anything new. And it's the first time I've talked about it, so you realize I'm not in a big hurry to, to deal with it. But it's the LGBTQ community. Uh, now you go, we're going to talk about that today? Yes, we are. Well, and I warned you last week, you know, to be careful, but we're going to deal with this. 
Because I said that the darling of the culture wars is the LGBTQ. It, it technically now, last I was, I'm not trying to be funny either, just trying to keep up with it. The last I heard is technically the LGBTQQIA+. That's the current, that's the current, but most of us just go with the LGBTQ. So, but that's the current thing. Also, I want to say this, because you may say, hey, I don't have no skin in the game with the LGBTQ community. Preach on, preacher. Well, you're not going to leave unscathed either, okay? I'm just going to get all of us today. How's that sound? Because I know this, that I need and you need deeper levels of commitment and love for Jesus. Whatever it is, whatever it is in our life, there's many things that God deals with in Scripture that we need to love Jesus more and have deeper levels of commitment, pursue that that commitment to the Lord. So discussions on this in our region, because I got a good pulse on the ministers in the area. By the way, in case you don't know this, for about the last 20 years, this church, Crossroads Community Church, has sponsored a minister's breakfast in, in the region. And over the course of a year, about 100 different ministers show up for these breakfasts, and we fellowship and share and get to know one another. And so it was about 12 years ago that this began to surface, the LGBTQ stuff in the community. And... Um, I, I thought about that, and I thought, what, what's going on here? And so us ministers talked and shared. And I want you to know this. Ministers and Christians are often considered to be hateful and mean-spirited towards the LGBTQ community. I want to say this clearly. I mean this. I fellowship with regularly about 80 ministers in this region, and not one single time. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just telling you my experience in decades of this, not one single time was anybody hateful, mean, or awful, or mean-spirited towards the LGBTQ community? In fact, quite the opposite. It seemed like every time we gathered, you know, we had this part of our session, regardless of what the topic was, is let's make sure that we're, we're not mean or, or, or harsh or rude or cruel to the LGBTQ community. And that was just spoken all the time. By the way, I want you to know, I don't want to be mean or cruel or... or Mean spirited towards anybody. But if you want to know what the Bible says, doesn't mean you have to believe it, but if you want to know what the Bible says, we're going to deal with that today. Now, I also find that people accuse people of being homophobic. I really want to get rid of that word out of our language because it's an illogical word. A phobia is an intense fear of something, an intense, irrational fear of something. So I have homosexual friends. We fellowship, wonderful people. When they come into the room, I have no fear. I have no phobia. A phobia is an irrational fear of something. Some of you have phobias maybe in this room over spiders. I just said the word and you tensed a little. If I showed a picture of one up there, you'd, it'd almost flip you out because it's a phobia. It's an irrational fear of something. It's a phobia. And, and I get that. But the word just doesn't even make sense. I don't have, nor do I know anybody that has an irrational fear and scared to death if, if a homosexual comes into the room. Not at all. So, over the last decade, I've heard this talked about over and over and over in our ministers' gatherings with a, with a heart to be loving and kind and gracious, which again, I want to be towards any group, but it was almost a point where I was going, hold it, wow, we, we're not this gentle on anything else. I never sat in a minister's gathering where they said, let's make sure we're super kind and nice and, and tender to the fornicators. Never had a conversation like that. Let's make sure that anyone who's uh, a serial adulterer 
doesn't feel uncomfortable, you know, in the church. Let's make sure that, that nobody who's an embezzler or this or that is uncomfortable. We, we just want to teach a scripture. What does the scripture say? So, and there's all kinds of buzzwords. Say there was a home in town one time. It always had this sign in front that says, we welcome all people. I said, no, we don't. I bet if I knocked on the door and said, so, uh, hey, I got a group of pedophiles that want to move into the area. Is that, they was, oh, no, we don't welcome that. Uh, we got a, uh, some uh, drug dealers that would like to move into the neighborhood. Do you, no, we don't welcome that. Uh, well, I have this. See, it, it's just we're friendly to the LGBTQ community, which, again, I have no problem being friendly with that. But we want to talk about what does the Bible say. Now, remember your worldview, even as a Christian, only 9% have a Christian worldview. So where do we get a worldview from? Mainly what we talked about last week in Psalm, the first chapter. We get it from the world. We get our worldview from the world. And Psalm 1 says we take the advice and counsel of the ungodly people who don't love God, don't know God, don't love his word. We get our viewpoints from the world, from Hollywood. That's probably one of our biggest sources. Uh, Stars, famous people, Hollywood, TV. That's where we get our worldview from. So we're going to look at something here. And by the way, although we pay all the money to make sure that we can show video clips and movie clips and all this stuff. Facebook often, you know, cuts it out and says, you know, we don't know if you had the right to this. And then about two weeks later, they send us a notice. Ah, oh, that's been restored to your feed uh, because we realize you have the right to see that. So what we're going to look at is a, a video clip. But if, if it gets bumped out, I want to show this slide here. It shows you where you can go find this. You can find this. Uh, it's from the, a show called The West Wing, which, by the way, I never watched an episode of it. But... I took some college courses back, some additional learning I wanted to do back a few years ago, and I was actually told to watch this and, and comment on it. So if it gets bumped out, you can go to YouTube and type in West Wing, Bartlett, and the Bible, and you can see this. But what I want to do is I want to look at this clip from, from the West Wing. Let's show that. You know, with so many people participating in the political and social debate through call-in shows, it's a good idea to be reminded every once in a while. <clears throat> it's a good idea to be reminded of the awesome impact, the awesome impact. I'm sorry, uh, you're Dr. Jenna Jacobs, right? Yes, sir. It's good to have you here. Thank you. The awesome impact of the airwaves and how that translates into the furthering of our national discussions, but obviously also how it can, how it can, forgive me, Dr. Jacobs, are you an MD? A PhD. A PhD. Yes, sir. In psychology? No, sir. Theology? No. Social work? I have a PhD in English literature. I'm asking because on your show people call in for advice and you go by the name Dr. Jacobs on your show and I didn't know if maybe your listeners were confused by that and assumed you had advanced training in psychology, theology, or healthcare. I don't believe they are confused, no, sir. Good. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 1822. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. 
I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21-7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35-2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? One last thing. While you may be mistaking this for your monthly meeting of the ignorant, tight-ass club, in this building, when the president stands, nobody sits. Well, I actually edited that word out, but it made it into the thing, so uh, if you caught that, my apologies. I must have loaded the unedited one in. I'm forgiven. Thank you. You look at that and you say, there's where we get our biblical knowledge, stuff like that. I mean, he made her look like an idiot. He chewed her up, spit her out made her look silly and stupid and, you know, really showed her. I was also impressed how the president had such good knowledge of the scripture, too, how they went through all the scripture. But now we're going to look at what does the Bible actually say? What does it actually say? What, what does the scripture say? You see, that speech, as powerful as it seems, is really bad Bible, and it's really illogical. Logic ought to flow through something. You notice that the subject works really well when they pick homosexuality. But there's lots, of, there's lots of laws in the Old Testament. So let's see if his logic works. Let's restart the story like this. Uh, Sam, the president, say, I really like how you call murder a sin. I don't call murder a sin, Mr. President. The Bible does. And then, of course, you know his speech. And then we come to the end and go, murder must be okay. I mean, he proved that, you know, Homosexuality is okay by showing how we forbid other things, so we must, be, must not forbid murder. Maybe we shouldn't forbid, you know, anything that the Scripture says. How about stealing or adultery or bearing false witness or not honoring your father and mother? You know, so there's lots of, lots of laws in the Old Testament, but it only really works well when you pick homosexuality, which is the darling of the culture wars. Now, I'll teach you what the Bible says. Again, you may not like it, you may want to refute it, uh, but we're going to look at what the Bible says. That's my responsibility. Here's how it works. Here's how God's laws work. There's two sets of laws in the Old Testament, and they were debating the Old Testament, so we want to look at those. There's very Jewish-specific laws, and then there are universal laws for all people. So if you study the Old Testament, you will find that God never, never judges a non-Jewish people group, he never judged a non-Jewish people group for violating 
Jewish laws. You'll never see that. You'll never see his judgment or wrath come upon a non-Jewish people because they, they didn't, they sowed two seed in, seeds in the field, they, they ate pork or touched a pig or, or they have two different materials in their garment. God never judges a non-Jewish people group for violating Jewish law. He does, however, judge and even punish. His mercy is super long-suffering, but he will eventually judge a non-Jewish people group for breaking universal laws. Jonah and Nineveh, the people were, were violent and they were cruel and they were greedy and they, uh, they broke all kinds of, of universal laws and judgment came to them. Also in God's loving kindness, when Jonah preached repentance, they repented and were spared. That's how good our God is. So when you look at scripture, you have to say, is, is this topic a Jewish-only thing, or is this a universal thing? Because God does judge non-Jewish people for violating universal laws. So when you look at the LGBTQ group, you have to ask yourself this. Does this violate Jewish-specific laws, or does this violate God's universal laws? The answer is, biblically, that it violates the universal laws of God for all people. The argument I've heard from people who have attended church for much of their life is that, Tracy, again, I've had several and still do have several friends in the LGBT community. By the way, I want to say this. All the discussions over the years that I've had with LGBTQ people and they've had with me, I have to make sure you make this plain. They were all adult and kind. No one was ever mean-spirited towards me. I was never, ever mean-spirited towards people. But they will tell me, well, well, Tracy, God never judged people. Jesus never judged people. Jesus never, never told people, don't do this or don't do that. He just loved people. Well, that's a beautiful version of Jesus, uh, but the real Jesus is even better. So when you read your Bible, you'll find out that Jesus judged a lot of things. He judged a lot of things. Now, he judged the Pharisees, the religious self-righteous. Now, there's something about the culture that has no problem with that. If Jesus wants to be as mean and honorary as can be to religious self-righteous people, so be it. You know, give it to him. But Jesus told the Pharisees that tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes are getting into heaven before you. What was he saying? You're going to hell. Well, that's pretty tough for a self-righteous religious rule keeper to hear. And then he told the people, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What was he saying? People, there's a righteousness that you have to have to go to heaven. And the scribes and Pharisees don't have it. And you can try to follow it, but Jesus at one time said, you can follow and listen to what they say, but when they're done with you, you'll be twice the son of hell that they are. This is the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus, in the beautiful passage, goes to the woman caught in adultery. And he, you might know the story, and then finally he says, where are your accusers? And they say, they're all gone. He said, neither do I condemn you. But the story doesn't end there. He said, go and sin no more. What was he saying? Your adulterous relationships are wrong. They are sinful. Stop it. Go and sin no more. Now we say, well, Jesus never told people. Yes, they did. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And he said, obey the commands. He said, I've obeyed all those commands since my youth. 
And he said, there's one thing you lack. And so he began to deal with the one thing the rich young ruler lacked, and it was his love of money. And the Bible says that the rich young ruler went away sad. And the Bible also says that Jesus loved him. But he said, this is what you have to do. The rich young ruler said, I can't do that, or I won't do that. I love this more than I love you. And he went away. Sad and not heaven-bound. Hmm. Interesting. Jesus healed a guy. Remember Jesus healing the guy uh, at the pool where he said, I've been lame for 38 years and I can't get in the pool. Somebody always beats me in there. Well, Jesus heals him. But he runs into him later in the temple. I don't know if you remember that part of the story. And he looks at him and he says, Now, leave your life of sin lest something worse comes upon you. Well, why would you say that, Jesus? Now, this is my opinion from how I understand the heart of God and Jesus. Because we, if you've been raised that God's mean and harsh and hateful, then you'll read it like this. You better straighten up your act or God will curse you with something worse than being crippled. What I think God was saying was there's something worse than 38 years of being crippled, and that is to live your life apart from God and die and go to hell. Something worse will come upon you if you do not yield to God, if you do not quit sinning. So, I do want to tell you the Jesus that a lot of people teach is not the Jesus of the Bible. And so when we look at the LGBT group and we say, yes, it does violate universal laws, it is sin. By the way, I had pastor friends back when this started happening, they said, well, we, we just need to love the sinner and hate the sin. I said, guys, you're, you're not getting it. That's old school thinking. The new group isn't saying, go ahead and love us. They're saying, quit calling this sin. Quit calling it sin. That brought them no comfort to say, we love you, we just don't love your sin. Because they'd say, quit calling this sin. This is not sin. This is okay. This is fine. This is biblical. This is, they actually have Bible for it, which I'll talk to you about in just a second. But it violates God's design for humanity. God designed male and female. And now, can, honestly, again, none of this message, I'm trying to be funny. Because it's not funny to me. But can you believe we're actually having a struggle of defining male and female? Can you believe our culture actually says, I don't know if we can say what's male or female. Yeah, yeah, we can. We can. And so God's design was male and female. And then God brought male and female into marriage and said and taught throughout Scripture, that is the only union, male and female, in marriage that the sexual relationship is permitted. Now you may be saying, well, time out. I was all fine with this when you were talking about homosexuality, but you're telling me that, a, not children, but a consenting man and a consenting woman having a sexual encounter outside of marriage is not okay? That's crazy talk, Pastor. I can't believe that. I mean, that's going on everywhere. And by the way, our young men and women, they're so full of hormones and energy and sexual uh, energy, uh, we, we cannot expect them to be pure. Yeah, we can. Yeah. We, we can. Well, that, that would be impossible. Not impossible. Very hard, but not impossible. Especially with what the culture shows. Not, not impossible at all. But I, I did tell 
Darling this one time, we were talking, I said, you know, it really is interesting. I know it's part of the fall of, of humanity, but I said, you know, yeah, I don't know about women because I wasn't one, but young men get doused with testosterone at about 12 or 13 years old. Then God says, now don't do nothing with that for another 20 years or 10 years. And, and I say, wow, it seemed like a bad plan. But you know what the good plan is? You and I have to yield our lives to Jesus and his word. And that's why I told you last week I started meditating on this verse. I've always heard it again from kind of the harsh side. Uh, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Which is kind of like, you, you love me, then you better stop all this. But then I started thinking, you know what? I think it really works backwards. I think it works different. If the more I love Jesus, the more I want to do his commands. The more I love him, the more I want to please him. That's, that's what God's shooting for, is for us loving him. So, I've heard all the arguments for homosexuality. And I want to say this clearly because I don't want there to be any confusion. There are no arguments in the Bible at all, zero, to promote or endorse homosexuality. Zero. It's non-existent. Well, I heard somebody say, I, I'm not trying to be mean. I don't care what you heard. I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. A little over a decade ago, I was attending a meeting at a local church here. A guest speaker was a professor from a liberal Christian college. His talk was about uh, how the Bible does not forbid homosexuality. And that was, again, this is a college professor at a liberal Christian college who came to teach that. So he told the story that he had a roommate in college, and they were friends, and the guy had same-sex attraction, and so they believed that was wrong. And so they prayed, and they fasted, and they cast out spirits, and they did everything. And at the end of the year, he was still same-sex attracted, still homosexual. So he came to the conclusion, God must not mind. I mean, we prayed and done everything we know to do, so it must be okay. Now, now let me show you what happened. Oswald Chambers has this great quote, so I want to put this up here. This will help me and you. This may not be your topic or your issue, but let's, let's grow in whatever issue we need to grow in. It says, we must continually remind ourselves of the purpose of life. We are not destined to happiness nor to health, but to Holiness. Never tolerate because of sympathy for yourself or for others any practice that is not in keeping with the holy God. You notice how you and I will excuse ourselves because after all, well, I mean, I did. I, I get that. We excuse ourselves. But we should never show sympathy for ourselves or for others. Now, I want to say this. doesn't mean we're not kind. doesn't mean we're not loving. doesn't mean we're not gracious. But we're not saying, well, I think it's okay. See, I think this, this professor started going down the path because he said, I just, my roommate's such a wonderful guy. I, I got a buddy right now. I will promise you, if we went out to lunch today with him, uh, he's homosexual, um, you will like him. You will enjoy hanging out with him. There's nothing evil, mean, awful, horrible about him. He's a doggone, likable, great, incredible guy. But I can't let my sympathy towards him say, I guess homosexuality is okay then. I have to go with what the Word of God says. So I want to tell you what was taught in this, in this gathering so you can know what the teachings are that are pro-homosexual. One of the key points of this is that God was not against homosexuality at all. He was just against infidelity. 
So if you have a faithful homosexual relationship, that's all God cares about. By the way, that's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible. And so then he said, we'll look at scripture and I'll tell you how Jesus endorsed homosexuality. This is actually what his teaching was. I was there live. This isn't hearsay. And he used the centurion's sick servant as the example. Now I'm going to give you the story in a nutshell. There's a Roman centurion. He's up in the ranks of the Roman military. He's in charge of 100 people. Uh, he has a servant that's at home sick. And he says to Jesus, you don't even need to come to my house. Just speak the word and he'll be healed. Jesus said, I've not seen so much great faith in all of Israel. When the centurion checks, the servant was healed at the self-same hour. So he healed this servant. That's the story, okay? That's all you'll find in the Bible. Let me tell you the story I heard that night. The professor's account of the story. The centurion's servant was sick. Now, it was not uncommon. This is not me speaking. This is the professor speaking. It was not uncommon in those days for Roman leaders, the affluent and the powerful, to have homosexual boy slaves. By the way, that did happen in Rome. That was not like everybody had them, but that was not uncommon in Rome. It was sanctioned. It was approved. It was, it was seen as good, fine, and right. The culture that day believed it was good, fine, and right. I just want you to know that. So this, most likely, the professor said, is what this was. So this young servant boy sex slave, Jesus heals him. And in healing him, he endorses homosexuality. Again, illogical things just bug the life out of me. So I'm going, okay, well, let's, let's pretend his story's true. We have a boy. He's sold into slavery. He is a homosexual sex slave for the centurion. By the way, I just want you to know the powerful and the affluent, they didn't go around and ask young boys, are you consensual in this? And are you homosexual? Because I sure wouldn't want to... No, they were slaves. So... We don't even know that this person in the, in the professor's story was, was, uh, was consensual or homosexual themselves. And so I'm looking at this and I say, okay, so if we take that story true, if God, using logic, if, if Jesus endorsed homosexuality by healing that servant, then he also endorsed, let's take the logic all the way through, he also endorsed slavery, he also endorsed child sex trafficking, he also endorsed uh, pedophilia, because it's a, a boy, and he also would have been endorsing homosexual rape. Now, I think everybody has a problem with the story once we take it that far and use the logic all the way through. By the way, the story never says he was a boy. You read the Bible, it never says he's a boy. He could have been 50 years old. We don't know. But that was the story he told and said, so this is why... We know Jesus supported homosexuality. You know what I think Jesus supported? He loved people. He loved to heal people. I don't think he was endorsing slavery or pedophilia or any of that. I think he was endorsing, I am a healer. I love to heal. I love to do good. So, the next thing the professor had to deal with, because one of the big stories is um, Sodom and Gomorrah. 
people always say, well, Sodom and Gomorrah, that's a sign that God hates homosexuality and killed Sodom and Gomorrah. If you don't know the story about Sodom and Gomorrah, a couple of angels show up. They're going to check out the city, rescue a lot in his family. Uh, the men of Sodom come out and say, send these men out to us that we might rape them, basically, have sex with them. Uh, the dad said, don't do this. This would be so unkind. Take my daughters instead. I always think that's a great thing, dad. Uh, take my daughters. They weren't interested in women. They wanted the men. The angels caused them to be blind. Lot and them escaped, and that's the story. But the real thrust of a lot of that story is that homosexuality thing that's going on. So the professor brought up this, which is a legitimate verse. It's in Ezekiel 16. It says, now this is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. There's no mention in there of homosexuality, so this is the sin of Sodom. But we see it mentioned in Genesis. We see more of the problems with Sodom because it doesn't say God came to destroy them because of homosexuality. I'll give you that. It does not say that. We're seeing a whole plethora of sins going on here, that they were unconcerned, overfed, inhospitable. They didn't take care of the poor and needy. They were, they were haughty. They were proud. And there was homosexuality. The whole thing all ran together. And then if we look in Jude, Jude chapter 1, verse 7, this is Jude chapter 1, verse 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. So the topic is obviously not they gave themselves up to heterosexual marriage because that's sanctioned by Scripture. So they gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who will suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So Genesis, Ezekiel, Jude, all give us an insight into the reason of Sodom's destruction. So, teaching on the Bible. By the way, I did not read about how to win friends and influence people when I preached this message. This isn't a popular thing in the culture at all. But I do want to say this again. Anybody that knows me, if you talk to my friends who are in the LGBTQ community, they'll say I've never been unkind or, or mean-spirited to them, nor are they to me. I just want to make that clear. It's not like, I'm so righteous and they're so awful. No, we're all, we all really get along and care for each other and are kind. We just disagree on this. And when they disagree with me, I don't think they're hateful or awful or being evil. Or if they said, Tracy's wrong and everything he says, I would not say, that's hate speech. You're saying, no, we're just looking at what the scripture says here. But the LGBTQ community wants special treatment from Scripture. I'll show you that from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. I can show you from lots of it, but the message is pretty lengthy anyway, so I cut it down as far as I could. 1 Corinthians 10, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, that's people who worship idols, nor adulterers, Right there, people have no problem with that. They see that. Nor men who have sex with men. By the way, the King James, the New King James, uses two different terms, homosexual terms there. NIV lumps them all together. But there's two different terms. One is somebody who's actively involved in homosexuality. The other is somebody who's passively involved. Maybe they're a temple prostitute or whatever. So they're, they're both condemned in Scripture. Those who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards. See, by the way, you may say, well, I don't have any problem with homosexuality. How about thievery, greed, drunkenness, slanderers, swindlers? 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what I've found is that when we look at these verses, I don't know too many people who would have any problem with saying, yeah, you're right, swindlers shouldn't do this. Uh, murderers shouldn't, drunkards shouldn't, thieves, greedy. But homosexuality is okay. I mean, it, it's okay. Well, then everything in here ought to be okay. If I'm just using logic. And look at what the scripture says. And that is what some of you, what's the next word? Were. Were. You're not now a Christian swindler. You're not now a other, another passage talks about homosexuality and also talks about prostitution. You're not a Christian prostitute. You're not a Christian uh, adulterer. You're not a Christian swindler or slanderer. This is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All of that in those verses not just homosexuality, all that in those verses violates the original plan for humanity. Man was not supposed to be swindlers and drunkards and greedy. They were not supposed to be idol worshipers. All that violates God's plan. Back in um, uh, Ireland, back several years ago, the um, homosexual marriage was approved. 62% of the population voted that homosexual marriage should be considered uh, lawful and wonderful. And a archbishop of Dublin got up and said, hey guys, we need to really think things. We need to, you know, change with the times, change with the culture, change, you know, what we teach and what we believe. Now this is a very interesting article I read several years ago. A gay atheist, Matthew Paris, rebuked, rebuked that archbishop and said, basically saying this, if you really believe the Bible, then believe it and man up. Teach it. Teach it. And he actually challenged him. He said, think about this. Can you imagine, this is Matthew Paris, a gay atheist. That's how he describes himself. Could you imagine Moses saying, well, it seems like the Israelites want to worship a demon god, so we have took a vote, and it's 62% for worshiping the demon god, so we just better go ahead and do it. Public opinion has nothing to do with God. Not only would Moses not do that, God wouldn't do that. If you took a poll, first of all, you wouldn't even take a poll, but if you took a poll and 100% of the people wanted to do it, God would say it's still wrong. It's still wrong. So there's other topics I want to touch on that are rampant in our culture. It's the gender identity issue. I want you to notice, please hear me, biblically and scientifically, Biblically and scientifically, there are only two genders, male and female, period. Now, for all my liberal friends who say, I believe in science, because almost all of them do, I believe in science. They're usually pro-evolution, so they see evolution as science, which, by the way, it's not, but that's neither here nor there for today's message. So I say, I believe in science, too. I love science, good science. I love science. And God created science, so I'm not anti-science. So, what does science teach? Scientifically, there are two ways to identify people. If you look at biology, anatomy, genetics, physiology, if you look at DNA, if you look at chromosomes, if you look at all this, they say there's two genders, male and female. John Hopkins in 2016 said there's no science to support being born gay or transgender. Now, 
That's 2016, so I'm sure, you know, as the culture progresses, we'll find other th ways to look at this. Now, I want to say this again, and I'm sorry that we have to say this often. I'm not mad at anybody, don't hate anybody, not upset with anybody. You can live life however you want. I'm just telling you my responsibility is to tell you what the Bible says. And please, again, don't say, well, that's your version of the Bible. No, this is, this is even the version of science. So if you want to make an argument for anything more than two genders, you're going to have to say, but I feel or I think. And then you might be able to get in the world of psychology and have them try to explain why, how you think and what you feel. But I do want you to know what you think and what you feel is not supreme. It's not supreme. Everybody here, even if you say, I have no interest whatsoever in the LGBTQ community, you got things in your life that you think and feel you ought to do and be that you should not do and be. You need to say, what does the Bible say about that? Wait till you get mad at somebody and say, I want to punch them right in the mouth. That's what I feel. I want to be true to myself. That's really what I want to do. You have to say, hold it. The wrath of man does not bring about the righteous work of God. And you have to say no to, you, to your desires. You know that Jesus taught this? You ought to love your enemies. There is not a desire in you naturally speaking, that will make you want to love your enemies. But I have to submit what I feel and what I think and what I want to the lordship of Jesus. But we start talking about all these genders, it just gets silly and it gets illogical and it gets unintelligent. And, and I was watching a commercial the other day, so I thought I would bring it up. It's a drug called Discovy. Now, Discovy is a medication for HIV to keep from the spreading of HIV. There's a line in there. Now listen to this line. This medication is not proven to work with those who were assigned female at birth. D did you hear that? They can't say, this won't work for women, because that would be politically incorrect and socially incorrect. This won't work for females. So they say, what are we going to do? Because we need to let people know that this, oh, this doesn't work for those who were assigned female at birth. So what do they do? If I go in and say, I would like to take Discovy, do they say, I'm sorry, I need to see your birth certificate? What if a, a lady went in and said, I want to take Discovy, and they look at the birth certificate and say, oh, man, it says female on here. If we could erase female off here and write in male, then it will work for you. Because apparently the whole thing is what you were assigned at birth. Do y'all understand how illogical and silly and foolish that gets? But we can't say anymore. I, I didn't see it, but supposedly our new Supreme Court justice asked if she could define a woman, and she couldn't. Again, you can send me an email later if that's not true. But I thought, why, why can't? Because it's socially wrong to say that. We have to say there's many, many genders. Well, what does genetics say? What does DNA say? What does anatomy say? What does biology say? What does, what does physiology say? Trust me, when you were born, the doctor and nurse didn't say, pick one, we don't know what this person is. Just write on there, male or female. And now, guess what? You can write on, what is non-binary? You can write on something like that. We don't know what this person is. Ah, sure, we looked at their body parts, we looked at their anatomy, we looked at their biology, we looked at their DNA, we looked at their chromosomes, we looked at, the, at their physiology, we looked at all that, but we cannot let science triumph over how you feel. 
So if you're female and you want to be male, or you're male and you want to be female, that's your prerogative. That's your right to do. But I'm going to share some honesty with you. By the way, and if you do that, I'm going to love you. Not going to be mad at you. Not going to do any of that. But I do want to tell you some things because I want you to know truth. If you decide to change your gender through gender reassignment surgery, I want you to know three things. First of all, everything I've read, psychologists have a lot of warning against it. And this one article I read, but it's logical, so it may be offensive. This one psychologist said, please do not let... By the way, he was not against gender reassignment. He just said, don't let... Five-year-olds and eight-year-olds and 12-year-olds and 10-year-olds and 20-year-olds even tell you, you, he said, wait till you're 25 years old. Now, again, this guy was not against it. He said, and if you want to have gender reassignment surgery, get it then because your body will have leveled out, you will think differently, and it's, it's just crazy because we know people got into trouble because their eight- or nine-year-old wanted to have a, a, a gender transition surgery and parents were not for it, and that became a big stink. The psychologist says, don't. And he also said this, but this is super logical, so this is a problem. He said, he said, um, what we need to do in the world of medicine is do the least invasive thing first. So if you go into the doctor and you say, I've had horrible headaches for the last 30 days. The doctor doesn't say, well, let's take you into surgery. We're going to crack open your brain. We're going to look in there and see if we can figure this out. No, they'll say, do you have stress? Do you, can you... Can you lay this aside? Can you stop this? How can we get you to feel comfortable uh, and heal you without doing brain surgery first? They will get to that if it's necessary, but they do the least invasive thing. So this psychologist said, how about instead of we start cutting and whittling on people's bodies, we say, let's try first seeing if we can make the guy who wants to be a girl feel comfortable being a guy. Now, that's offensive in the culture. Like, how dare you? You're saying there's something wrong with me. No, you're saying there's something wrong with you. You're saying your physiology's wrong. So everybody's saying something's wrong. The psychologist says, why don't we start first? And again, he wasn't even against it. He said, let's start first the least invasive thing. Maybe we can get you to feel comfortable with your body. The second thing, I read an article from a transgendered female who uh, was not opposed to it, obviously. Uh, he was turning into a she and... She said this, hey, I just want you to know this. It is no walk in the park. I've almost died twice from sepsis. Uh, it's super uh, horrible. It's awful. It's hard. It's bad. Uh, do not get duped into believing, oh, it's a simple little procedure. It is not, and it is serious. The other thing, if you do any reading or studying on this, I just read a pro-transgender article, and it said this. Now, we do want you to know this, because we get asked. After my body's transition from male to female or female to male, will I actually be a male or a female? And the answer is no. If you are male and transgender to a female, by every scientific marker, you will still be a male. And vice versa. Now they did say, we hope one day that this might change. I said, how are you going to change that? I don't know how you change that. It's how you're made. So what's the church supposed to do? What we're supposed to do is love people. People are wanting to deal with pronouns nowadays. That's an interesting one. Some people say, I want my pronoun to be they. Words matter to me, so I'm, going, I, I'm sorry, I can't call you they. If you look up the definition of they, it's a pronoun. 
a word used to refer to two or more people. You are not two, three, five, seven people. I feel like I am. I'm sorry, you're not. I, I have a hard time calling you they and all the crazy pronouns that go on. So we're supposed to walk in the royal law of love. We're called to love people. And loving people is not always agreeing with them. Loving people is not always celebrating things. I really did not even mean to do this. I know this is Celebrate Pride Month, and I went, oh, I just figured that out a few days ago. And I say, this is not very celebratory of, of Pride Month. And I want to say this as kindly as I can. I cannot celebrate that which God does not celebrate. Now you can say, but that seems mean-spirited. I don't mean for it to be. What if I had an anti-LGBT Pride Month? The world would have no problem saying we ain't celebrating that. Hmm. Michelle Obama said in a speech right before former President Barack Obama's re-election, a beautiful speech, she was well-spoken, she's a gorgeous gal, she had finesse, and I mean, everything about it. I, I told Darlene, we were watching the speech, I said, man, if, if Barack's not popping a button with pride, he ought to be. She was flawless. And of course, she had all the cultural buzzwords, and one of them was, Brock and I believe that people ought to love whoever they want to love. But see, we really don't totally mean that. I was watching the news the other day, and this couple was on. They wanted to get married and said they were forbidden to get married. Handsome couple, seems sane and intelligent. I was thinking, why in the world can't they get married? Well, as the story unfolded, because she's his biological daughter. Hmm. Wow. He must, seriously, he must have been a teenager when, when uh, uh, he had her. And, but they said, we love each other, we want to be together. Uh, well, if, if Michelle Obama and former President Barack Obama really mean that, and the culture means that, then they should be able to get married. And I suppose there'd be a lot of the culture that say, yeah, absolutely they should be. If they really love each other, consenting adults, they ought to. But there's still even a, uh, probably a sizable group, this is my guess, of even the LGBTQ community that go, eh, I don't think dads need to marry their daughters, and sons need to marry their moms, or brothers need to marry their sister. I just, I don't think that's cool. There's all kinds of things that go on. Should we love who we want to love, marry who we want to marry, have relationship with who we want to marry, or have relationship with? I don't know if you've heard of this before, but it's called bestiality or zoophilia. And I read an article from a guy not too long ago, and he said, from my earliest memory, from my earliest memory as a child, I loved romantically animals, not people. Hmm. And so he uh, said, while all my friends were sneaking off to get their dad's playboys, I had a book called The Big Book of Horses. He fell in love with horses romantically. He now has a monogamous relationship with a consensual horse. This is not a lie. Now, you say to yourself, well, I guess that's okay because he ought to be able to love who he wants to love. Now, I wanted to be logical. The homosexuality world will say, I just, from my earliest remembrance, I was same-sex attracted. I want to say this. I don't doubt that. And so I think I should be able to love and marry whom I want to love and marry. Well, think about the logic. This guy who loves horses romantically said, from my earliest remembrance, I loved animals. Now, 
I think the LGBTQ community, I'm not joking about this, should be celebrating along with them. If you were born that way, and if that's who you love, then you can love them. Now you go, well, that's crazy. The culture will never do that. Study Rome. Study Rome. Zoophilia was common in Rome, where they had love relationships with animals. And it was deemed okay and normal. Now I do want to say this. Sometimes we say, well, well, you know, were you born that way? I'm not talking physically, but I do want to say this. Please hear me. In a spiritual sense, we're all born defective because we're born into sin. And so, again, the LGBTQ world may not be yours, but maybe it's adultery, maybe it's fornication, maybe it's pedophilia, maybe it's zoophilia, maybe it's, oh, you might not even know about this, maybe it's objectophilia. Say, what's objectophilia? Being in love with inanimate objects. Saw a guy on 2020 or 60 Minutes one, two or three years ago, he was romantically in love with this car. No joke. Dead serious about it. Last year, I, I read a story of this. seemed like a beautiful young lady. She married her, or her briefcase. Objectophilia is, a, is a, a romantic connection to an inanimate object. She married her briefcase. Now, they did say in the article it was not official marriage because the uh, UK doesn't sanction um, marrying an inanimate object. I just figured it wasn't legal because the briefcase couldn't sign its name, but that was just my way of thinking. So that objectophilia, that actually exists. Where do you draw the line? Well, people will draw the line where the culture keeps getting lower and lower and lower. Christians should draw the line with what the scripture says. And I want to say it again. Well, we don't know what, we, we know what it says. We got to draw the line where, where the Bible says. So what's the answer for all these things? What's the answer for all the things that grab my heart? Maybe pornography has your heart. Maybe, you know, again, those of you who are more LGBTQ friendly say, oh, thank you, get off the subject. Get on pornography or, or jealousy or quarreling or fighting because all those things are in the Bible. What's grabbing your heart? The answer for all this is Jesus and falling in love with him deeper and deeper and deeper. As you look through scriptures everywhere, Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Corinthians, the battle cry for the believer is this, we are new creations. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Jesus. We've died to self. Our body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. What, no, you're not that your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body and your spirit, which are his. Romans 1, 12, Romans 12, 1, 2, I beseech you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present yourself unto God as a living sacrifice. You're going to die to self. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. That's worship. Well, I would have to deny my desires. Uh, yeah. Wow, that'd be really hard. I believe it would be really hard. In fact, I have tremendous compassion and empathy and sympathy for those who have same-sex attraction. And I would say, so I would live the rest of my life outside of that relationship? Yes, because you want to please Jesus. Or you can say, I don't care about Jesus or the Bible or whatever. I'm going to live what I, how I want to live. But all of us, regardless of any area of our life, we have to submit to the lordship of Jesus. There's so many scriptures. I just picked one, but I could have picked a dozen different ones. 
and I'm going to give you some words today that you long to hear. Are you ready? In conclusion, you're going, woo, finally. Okay. 2 Corinthians 5, 15, 20, and 21. And he, Jesus, died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. That's me, you, and everybody. But for him, you should live for him, for Jesus, who died for them and was raised again. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. I am Christ's ambassador today. God's making an appeal through me to you. So on Christ's behalf, I want to say, be reconciled to God. Be made right with God. Submit your life to God. I need to do that. You need to do that. And we need to spend the rest of our lives growing deeper and deeper in love and in faithfulness to Jesus. Then God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. That's our battle cry. Fall more and more in love with Jesus. Regardless of what you struggle with in life, let's fall more in love with Jesus. Let's find out what pleases him and do it. Let's say no to ourselves and yes to him. The Bible says we're dead unto sin, alive unto God. Will it be hard? Probably. Because the Bible says this, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So will it be a struggle? Absolutely. But I believe being a Christian is saying, I yield myself to the Lordship of Jesus. Let's pray together.